0: God 1 Corinthians 9, 1 Corinthians 9, and we'll be reading verses 24 through 27. Here is the infallible, inspired, inerrant word of God, 1 Corinthians 9, verse 24. Do you not know that those who run in a race all run, but only one receives the prize? Run in such a way that you may win. Everyone who competes in the games exercises self-control in all things. They then do it to receive a perishable wreath, but we an imperishable. Therefore I run in such a way as not without aim. I box in such a way as not beating the air. I discipline my body and I make it my slave. So that after I have preached to others, I myself will not be disqualified. Let's ask God to help us understand His Word. Almighty and everlasting God, you are always more ready to hear than we are to pray and to give more than we either desire or deserve. To pour upon us the abundance of your mercy, forgiving us those things of which our conscience is afraid, and giving us those good things for which we are not worthy to ask. All this we pray. The merit and mediation of Jesus Christ, our Savior, who lives and reigns with you in the Holy Spirit, one God forever and ever. Amen. Amen. You may be seated. We began our exposition of chapter 9. We said that we were going to reject two ways of understanding this chapter. We'll review that for a moment. First of all, we rejected the idea that uh, some scribe somewhere in the early church fell asleep at the wheel and somehow inserted 1 Corinthians 9 uh, into this great letter to the Corinthians breaking up Paul's admonition between chapters 8 and chapter 10. The other uh, alternative to understanding this chapter uh, is that Paul sort of is just on uh, a digression here. It's really a parenthesis to his overall point, an admonition about uh, meat sacrifice to idols and how we exercise Christian freedom. And we said what we're going to do is adopt the traditional scheme or interpretation of this passage, which is really what the Apostle Paul is doing is saying, hey, I want you to look at my example of how I uh, use my Christian freedom in order uh, to be a blessing to the church. And so 1 through 18, we noted his apostolic credentials, his right to a paycheck for preaching the gospel. So last week we looked at verses 19 through 23 and we noticed how the Apostle Paul used his freedom in order to win others to Jesus Christ. And we noticed then that uh, the Apostle's methodology uh, was to sacrifice freedom and liberty wherever he needed to in order to get close to people so that he could preach the gospel to them. And now what we have in verses 24 through 27 is sort of summation. It's bringing the uh, appeal to his own example to a conclusion. Uh, and what he does here is uh, two things. First of all, he appeals to his own example, and he says, this, uh, brothers and sisters in the Lord, is how you use uh, your liberty. You do it with self-discipline and self-control. And so we would say that the primary aim of this particular set of verses here in bringing this appeal to his own example, uh, to a conclusion, the primary aim is to say to Christians, uh, we need to use our discipline, or rather our Christian freedom in a disciplined way. But, you know, when you read these verses, you see that there's another broader and secondary purpose and aim to these verses that is so loud, it drowns out, really, how these set of verses function uh, to uh, teach us about how we use our Christian freedom. In fact, you can't miss this broad, uh, dominant idea in these verses that Paul is giving instruction to the church about how to live the Christian life. And we can't miss the fact here that the Apostle Paul sets up this athletic metaphor to describe for us uh, what it is really like on a day-by-day basis to live for Jesus Christ. And uh, we're going to dig into that, but uh, what I want us to do first of all is place this on the gospel footing. Because what Paul does here is he gives us law. And he says, this is how you run the Christian life. And what I want us to do is never forget that when we come across admonition about how we are to live as Christians, that is always based upon the foundation of the of the gospel. And what I want us to do is be hearing the admonition here with the gospel ringing in our ears. And so you remember that the Apostle Paul began this exposition of the epistle to the Corinthians by addressing them as those who are sanctified in Christ Jesus and saints by calling. In other words, they are in the church... Not because they were born into it, but they are in the church and in Jesus Christ because the sovereign calling of God has addressed them, has summoned them, has called them out of sin and brought them unto Jesus Christ where they receive salvation and sanctification and justification. He says in verse 30 of chapter 1 that they are in Christ Jesus who has been made unto them wisdom from God and righteousness and sanctification and redemption. You see, the language uh, underscores the fact that the participation in Christ is by God's sovereign grace. And, and what Paul did was set up a rather elaborate and, and dense foundation for admonition uh, based upon the gospel. And we find that that's a very typical way that Paul addresses the church, is that he expounds the great riches of our redemption in Jesus Christ uh, so that he can motivate the Christians based upon their gratitude for salvation to now live in accordance with the standards of a Christian life. And what I want us to do this morning is to hear this admonition to live the Christian life with the gospel ringing in our ears. I want us to remember as we hear this very powerful and strong and vivid uh, call to live a Christian life uh, with the reminder... That Jesus has paid for our whole life with His precious blood. That we are justified in Jesus Christ and that it's His obedience that has secured me a right standing with God. I want us to be aware of the fact that the only reason why we are able to respond to the Admonition this morning is because we have been regenerated and recreated in the glorious image of Jesus Christ by sovereign grace. And and I want us to be impressed with that, because if we are this morning, then we have to realize that this call to this Christian life is our call. This is not a a sort of call that we can take or leave. This is the call for every Christian. Mindful of that gospel footing, let's begin to dig into the passage. And notice here that the Apostle Paul says that your life... Let's make this personal. Your life is like a race. He says in verse 24, Do you not know that those who run in a race all run, but only one receives the prize? Run! In such a way, he says. You see that? He connects this metaphor of of athletes competing in Olympic-style games. And he says they do it in a particular way. They do it with might. They strive. They work hard. They're disciplined. They pursue a goal and a prize. He says, "That's you. Just as they maximize all of their effort and concentration and energy on striving for the finish line, that's how you run. That's how you run." And it's a very vivid example. I mean, it, it, it was it was um, using an athletic metaphor was something that would have. Uh, help people very easily grasp the idea. The Corinthians and many of the people in the Mediterranean were sports nuts, just like we are today. In fact, uh, the games were some of the biggest entertainment that they had. Particularly the Corinthians, because they hosted what was called the Isthmian Games, which were basically warm-ups for the Olympics. And it was held about ten miles outside of Corinth, And it was something that all of the city would have gone to. In fact, uh, being able to date Paul's ministry in Corinth between the late 50 and 52, uh, we know that the games landed while he was there in Corinth. They were every third year, so we know the Apostle Paul was probably there. And so he'd watched a number of these contests, and it just turns out, as he was an observer, not a participant, it it worked in his favor a few years later when he has to address the Corinthians. He says, "Ah, all those things that we saw there at the games, that we were witness to, now have an application to our life as a way of illustrating what it means to run as a Christian. So the Christian life here is compared to uh, this athletic metaphor and there's just a couple of broad implications that suggest to us this morning before we dig into uh, the apostle's instructions on how to live this life. But I want us to have these broad implications tucked away in our minds so that as we're hearing the admonition, uh, that we're thinking about these things. And the first thing that uh, the apostle is communicating here by using this athletic metaphor, uh, he's saying, first of all, the Christian life is going to be hard. The Christian life is going to be difficult. And I know that that's what he means by this example, because everybody knows that running is not fun. I hate running probably almost more than anything I can think of. It's it's miserable. It hurts my feet and my knees. And I gas out and I win very quickly. and, And I don't like it. But it's something I have to do. It's something that I struggle through. So if you're like me, you're not really built to be a runner and you run, it's probably not fun for you either. But Paul draws that idea out in verse 25 when he says, everyone who competes in the games, competes there, is the word agonizomai. It's the word we get agony from. It's a struggle. I want us to grasp that You know, a failure to appreciate the difficulty of the Christian life is a principal reason why people fall away. We have to be mentally adjusted to the fact that the calling to be a disciple of Jesus Christ requires a lot of energy, a lot of effort, and to go through a lot of struggle and a lot of pain. Now I realize that's not billboard Christianity, it's not the promise that's so often spoken of when people think about the gospel, is that the gospel is the fast way to, to land on easy street. But you see here, uh, routinely throughout the New Testament, we find that the call to be a Christian is always accompanied by this warning that it's a difficult process, it's a difficult life, it's a, it's a struggle. We couldn't miss that in Jesus' own explanation of what it means to be a disciple. He said, take up your cross, deny yourself, and follow me. He wasn't promising them all kinds of uh, of, of easy, smooth sailing days in the future. He says it's about self-denial. It's a struggle. And so one of the things I want us to hear as we listen to the law, as it explains to us and commands us, uh, to live this Christian life, we need to remember that we must be prepared for a Christian life that is full of struggle. The other thing that this uh, metaphor suggests to us, being uh, uh, describing the Christian life as a race, is that the Christian life must always uh, be lived in such a way that we're constantly moving forward. It's about progress. It's about progress. There's no uh, concept in the entire New Testament Scriptures that suggest to us that when we come to Jesus, we get covered in His blood, we receive His righteousness, and then we can decide whether we want to take the higher plane of Christianity and try to be uh, good people, or we can just go ahead and live like the world because we're covered now. And there's some teaching out there in the Christian world that basically says it's optional whether you want to live like a Christian. Well, what Paul does here by comparing the Christian life to a race is suggest to us that the Christian life is about constant forward progress. You have to keep your feet moving, you have to keep your head down, and you have to keep striving. Now that's important to remember because the commands here that he gives us about that, that explain to us and unfolds for us how to live the Christian life have to be uh, thought of in this way that it's not only going to be a difficulty but it's going to be that we have to constantly apply these things. We cannot um, have a hit and miss approach to the Christian life. We don't get to take a whole week off from being Christians. You follow? There's no vacation. We have to press so with all that in mind, let's come back to the passage and let's deal uh, with what the Apostle Paul speaks about here as he talks about the Christian life. And the first thing that I want us to notice is that the Apostle Paul admonishes Christians to run the race of the Christian life constantly with their eyes on the goal or the prize. You can't miss that in verses 24 and 25. He says, don't you know that those who run in a race all run, but only one receives the prize? Run in such a way that you may win. Verse 25, everyone who competes in the games exercises self-control in all things, then they do it to receive a perishable wreath. In other words, what the Apostle Paul is drawing out here is that everybody who competes in the games does it for one purpose. The prize. They do it for the prestige of being a winner. And by the way, if you won the games of the ancient world, you were a hero. You were on the billboards everywhere. You were somebody who was talked about around town. You didn't have to pay for lunch or dinner anymore. You were a success. You were looked up to as somebody who was nearly immortal. It secured all kinds of access to the things that people who live in this life think are the most important things we can ever have. Money, fame, access. That all came along with winning the prize, and so the reason why they were willing to be so disciplined in the pursuit of that prize, both during training and during the race, is because that finish line, if they got there first, opened the door to a life full of good things. Now, the Apostle Paul uh, is careful here to accent that. He says, uh, just as the Christian life is a race, then just as people who are in a race run to win that prize, he says, you do it that way. It's uh, vivid in the original. It says, in this way, run, so that you can win. You know, Paul wouldn't be like the athlete that is interviewed after the games or before some of these contests, like the Super Bowl or whatever, where it's just full of clichés. Oh, we're just happy to be here. It's an honor to be a part of this process. All those kinds of things. Paul would not be talking about, in terms of all these clichés, he would not see that there's any value in second place. It's like I told you before. My coach used to have the same mentality. He would always tell us before the game, remember, uh, we're here to have fun. And just remember that losing isn't fun. And then he prayed for victory. <laughs> okay? It, 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 wasn't, it wasn't fun to just be there. We weren't excited just to show up and to suit up and put in a uniform on and do warm-ups. Some people are interested in that. They like the warm-ups. They like how the, the warm-up uniforms look. They like the, uh, the warm-up exercises. They like the fact that people are watching them. But they really don't have a winner's attitude when they hit the floor. The apostle wouldn't go for that. The apostle doesn't believe there's such a thing as participation ribbons. It didn't used to be this way when I was growing up and playing ball, but I guess it's this way now and it has been for maybe 15 to 20 years at least, uh, that everybody gets a trophy, whether they won or not. Uh, The Apostle does not think in those terms. He does not think in terms of participation ribbons for you because you were there. Paul says, no, you run in such a way that you win. You see, this mentality is illustrated in the movie, and I might get myself in trouble with this uh, example, but meet the Fockers. Uh, You know, he goes into his parents' house with his uh, bride-to-be, and her family's there, and and, uh, they go show the family, the visiting family, the the room where the son used to stay. And and what there was was this uh, shrine, almost, to his incompetence. They had all these ribbons of fifth and sixth place and participation and tenth place, this, that, and the other thing. And the guy was utterly embarrassed because he said, why did you keep all of this junk? And they just reminded him how, uh, how great it was that he was a participant. You see, that's the mentality. We're just happy to participate. But the Apostle Paul says, no, you run the race in this way That you win. You have a competitor's mindset. You're not going to take second place because second place doesn't exist. The only thing there is is winning and losing. And he says, you win. Verse 26, he applies that mentality to himself. He says, this is how I do it. Look at verse 26. He says, therefore, I run in such a way as not without aim. I box in such a way as not beating the air. You see, he says, I run in the same way. I run, that therefore connects it back to verse 25 in the admonition uh, to seek the, the, uh, the prize. the says, I do it in the same way. I run that way. He says, when I box, uh, I don't box aimlessly. Now, your study Bibles right here might have something to the effect that Paul is talking about shadow boxing. I disagree with that. Uh, Paul is talking about, when he says box with aim, he's talking about landing uh, a, a right cross flush to the chin. Uh, it doesn't make any sense for him to appeal to boxing at the air in view of the metaphor and the analogy. He's saying, I box in such a way that I strike somebody flush on the chin. You see, in the ancient games there was wrestling there was boxing, and there's something that is sort of like uh, mixed martial arts. It was called pancration, which was a combination of kicking and punching and grappling. Whatever Paul has in mind here, whether it's uh, MMA or whether it's boxing, he says, I punch in such a way that it's accurate so that I score the knockout. That's interesting, isn't it? He says he throws punches with a goal. Paul also speaks about this concept of running the race with the goal firmly in mind so that we don't miss that. Philippians chapter 3, you don't have to turn there. He says in verse 14, I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. You see how he runs. He says, I run constantly with the goal fixed in mind. I'm always thinking about the end of the race. I'm always thinking about the prize. He says in verse 12, explaining more about his run, he says, I don't run in such a way that I think I have already obtained. I press on. Then verse 13, he says, I do not regard myself as having laid hold of it yet. I do one thing, forgetting what lies behind and reaching forward to what is ahead. In other words, he says, my entire focus and orientation to Christian life is that I have a short memory about what happened yesterday and I have a constant focus upon the goal. That's the way you run. That's the way you compete. That's the way... You live the Christian life. <clears throat> Listening to an interview the other day with Tommy Lasorda. It pains me to bring up the Dodgers. But um, at any rate, Tommy Lasorda talked about how at the very end of the Dodgers season years ago, they were just about ready to clinch uh, a pennant spot. And they had won all these games. And he said that there were four more games to go. And they had to win all the games in order to get into the playoffs. He said, you know what I did is I uh, I told them a story. I told him about the story about the fisherman who went out to sea to go fishing. And he had a great day fishing. Caught a lot of fish. He filled the boat with fish. But as it turned out, about a thousand yards from the shore, his boat capsized. He got thrown out of the boat, and all the fish that he caught that day were gone. And he says, That man started to swim. And he swam, and he swam, and he swam, and he used all of his might to keep swimming because he wanted to hit the shoreline so he didn't drown. And he said, you know what happened to that fisherman four yards away from the shore? He drowned. His point was it doesn't matter the 996 yards that he did swim effectively. The only thing that mattered was reaching the finish line. And he said the reason why he fell short of that is because he was more concerned about all the success he had right up to the brink of the shore. And he said, this is what you need to do, is you need to focus through the goal. That's what Paul is saying here. You constantly bear in mind the duty, the obligation of running the Christian race with your eyes on the goal. And to not fall four yards short of Jesus Christ. We'll come back to that as we round out our message this morning. The admonition to persevere. But you see, that's the calling of the Christian life. To focus on the goal, the end, Christ, glorification in Him. And that's something that we constantly struggle for. And so the question would be, how do we do it? How do we do that? We know we have to keep moving forward. We know it's going to be difficult. Uh, we know we have to run with our eyes on the prize. But how? And I think it's suggested in what the Apostle Paul says in verse 25. He says, Everyone who competes in the games exercises self-control in all things, and they do it to receive a perishable wreath, but we an imperishable Just to set up that idea a little bit, um, these uh, contestants in their preparation went to great lengths to make sure that they were physically primed in order so they could compete with maximum energy. They swore off everything for 10 months. For that one day to get the chance to compete for the prize. And Paul says, you know what? That prize was perishable. You know, it might have signified and symbolized access to everything that we want in this life. And we already talked about how that's what the goal did. You were immortalized as a hero. It opened up access to everything that you wanted. You know how Paul, Paul looks at it? He puts it down. He said, it's perishable. We're not running for a perishable prize. He says, we are running for something that's imperishable. And you see, that's the thing that we have to keep straight as we focus on the goal. We're not running for this worldly satisfaction. You see, that's the kind of mentality that keeps people deluded day by day as they live in this world when they don't know Jesus Christ. They're always looking for something in the moment to satisfy them for now so they don't have to think about the end. And by focusing on the now and never thinking about sinfulness and judgment day and Christ, the gospel is obscured And they don't come to saving grace because they are more concerned about consuming things that meet their desires now. They're concerned about a perishable wreath. But I'll tell you this, no one will be sitting in hell 10 million years into suffering thinking about what a good time they had on earth. They're not going to be sitting around saying to themselves, well, you know, this is all worth it. At least I had a lot of money while I lived. I had a nice house while I lived. I went to a lot of good parties while I lived. I had a 4.0 grade point average At the best schools while I lived. Those don't matter. Because they're only momentary, they're perishable. Paul says, we're not running for that kind of a crown. He says, we're running for that which is imperishable, that which has value that will never be diminished, that will never fail to satisfy, forever and ever and ever and ever. How do you keep focused on that prize? Well, you have to think about what it is. The value, the blessing, is to meet Jesus and to be conformed to Him. Well, what else do we think about when we think about this Christian life being a race? Well, Paul tells us, secondly, it's also about self-control. We run it focusing on the prize, which is to meet Jesus and to be glorified and to be made as He is and to enjoy Him forever and ever. But secondly, we run in such a way that we are disciplining ourselves all along the route couple of different ways Paul brings us up. In verse 25, he says, everyone who competes in the games exercises self-control in everything. He exercises self-control in everything. In other words, uh, Paul might say that self-control is next to godliness. Uh, he accents this all the time. We'll come back to that. But but the Christian life can't possibly be lived without self-discipline and self-control. He talks about how extreme uh, he was in his own self-discipline. You see it in verse 27. He said, I discipline my body and I make it my slave. Now, I almost never have to correct the New American Standard Version, but it doesn't say discipline. In the original, it says hupo piazzo, which means to strike somebody on the eye and give them a black eye. That's what it literally means. He says, I give myself a black eye. You see, the lengths he would go to to discipline himself and to bring his appetites and his desires and his body under complete mastery and control. He was not going to stop short of whatever measure it took in order to maintain discipline in his life. He says, that's how you run. And it's, it's interesting as you study out the rest of Paul's letters and you survey them for information about this, uh, this manner in which we run, you'll find that he regularly, as well as the rest of the New Testament apostles, speak about self-control and self-discipline being essential. But 1 Timothy 4.7, the apostle Paul says to Timothy uh, that he is to discipline his body for godliness. Godliness is the goal, the aim, the thing that you're trying to cultivate and acquire. And he says, this is how you do it. You, you discipline yourself. You discipline your body. Uh, Peter says in 2 Peter 1.6, and he gives us a whole series of qualities and virtues that he said you just have to add to your faith. Right at the top of the list is what? Self-control. I want you to turn with me to a passage where this is drawn out. That's Hebrews chapter 12. Please turn with me in your Bible there. You need to see it for yourself. Hebrews chapter 12. Because this passage, what it does is it unfolds for us how discipline uh, ties into this Christian race. And uh, what the preacher here says is, Since we have so great a cloud of witnesses surrounding us, let us also lay aside every encumbrance and the sin which so easily entangles us, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, fixing our eyes on Jesus. Now you see there the same word run that's used in Hebrews chapter 12 is the same word the Apostle Paul uses in 1 Corinthians chapter 9. Run, he says. But what the preacher does here is he qualifies it in four different ways to help us understand how we use self-discipline in order to run this race. And here are the disciplines. He first of all says, and it's interesting how this is set up in the grammar, in the original, all of these cluster around the word run. So we're very clear in the original that it's saying this is what it means to run. or This is how you do it. This is the disciplined manner in which you go. And the first thing that the preacher says, the way you have to run is by putting aside every encumbrance Every encumbrance. That's just a big word for saying anything that hinders you. Anything that slows you down, you throw it off. Any extra weight, any baggy clothing, anything that in any way trips you up, slows you down, or restricts you in any way, he said, you throw it off. Now, by the way, when he says here, endure uh, any encumbrance, he's not talking about sin necessarily. And this is where it ties back into the idea of Christian freedom and what you should or should not use or what you are permitted to to make use of in terms of your Christian liberty. uh, What the preacher says is that anything that is going to slow you down and to hinder you running for that prize, you get rid of it. You put it away. Secondly, he says... This is the other thing we have to do is lay aside the sin. Now we're talking about sin. Before we weren't, but now we're into sin. He says, you put aside the sin that so easily entangles us. That word entangle is very vivid. Very vivid. It has the idea of placing a great weight on you to control you. To put pressure and force on you to control you. Now, very fascinating here, what he says is, you put that sin off, which entangles you. or It's like a big weight, like an anchor around your neck that just dominates you. He said, you put it off. He said, why in the world would you have it on? If it's that bad, why would you have it? And the answer is, because that's just how sin affects you. It just sneaks up on you. You know, you know something's wrong and you do it. And maybe you've built up in your mind that the thing that you, that that sin that you did, maybe you built it up in your mind that it was going to have all these terrible consequences and effects. And you know what? You did it anyway. You threw caution to the wind one day and you did it anyway. And what'd you find out? You didn't die. Lightning didn't strike you from the sky. Your life didn't radically change. Everything felt okay. And so because nothing bad happened to you, what did you do? You went and did it again! And when you did it again, nothing really happened. And you said, well, hey, if nothing happened, let's do it again. And pretty soon you keep doing it, you go back, it, go back to it, you go back to it, you go back to it over, over, and over, and over. And then you say, wait a second, something doesn't feel right. Something doesn't feel right. now." You see, what used to be something that you thought of was no big deal, that didn't have any consequences or effects, is something now that's got you in its clutches and it's controlling everything you do you say, how did that happen? Well, that's just the nature of sin. It just sort of sneaks up on you. Makes you feel comfortable. Nothing really is happening here. Can't be too bad then, right? Well, until you one day wake up and you realize you can't stop. See, that's a sin that's got a, like a weight or a control over you. Now, the preacher said, if you got one of those kind of sins in your life, he says, you better throw it out. You better put it aside. Because you can't run with sin hanging around your neck. He says, you have to put it on. We'll come back to that. Third, he said, you have to run the race with endurance. And we've already talked about that a little bit, didn't we, in the beginning part of the message this morning. You have to run with endurance. You have to press on through the difficulties. And there are going to be plenty of them. You cannot allow the difficulties and the trials and the struggles and the obstacles in your way distract your attention from the goal, which is to run so as to win, to seek the prize. You cannot all of a sudden become discouraged and apathetic and feel sorry for yourself and just decide you're going to sit down alongside the road in the shade and call it good. He says, you run the race with endurance. You keep running even though you got a side ache. You keep running even though it feels like your lungs are about ready to explode. Just keep going. You bear with the difficulties. You endure. Now, here's the final thing I want us to see in this passage, which is so essential to instructing us how a discipline comes together. Uh, and, and assists us and strengthens us in running the race of the Christian life. He says, fixing our eyes on Jesus. Fixing our eyes on Jesus. That word fixing there has the idea of looking at something and thinking about it and turning it over again and again and again and again and evaluating it, and weighing it, and thinking about it. He says, this is how you run. You you run fixing your eyes on Jesus. You run thinking about Christ at the end of the race. We get a little help uh, in understanding what this is all about in verse 26. Same. Just, just look right up in your Bibles to uh, verse 26 in, in Hebrews 11 there, and you'll see, you'll see something here. Uh, the preacher is talking about the example of Moses. And he said, This is what Moses did in running his race. Considering the reproach of Christ, greater riches than the treasures of Egypt, for he was looking. To the reward. Same word there as you find down in verse 2. Fixing there. It's just translated in verse 26 as looking. But same idea is there. The word means the same thing. Fixing. See what he did? Fixing his eyes on the reward. Now how this uh, sort of colors in for us what the preacher means down in verse 2 is if you look back and say verse 24 and 25, you see what he wasn't looking at. Verse 24 said... By faith, Moses, when he had grown up, refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter. Notice what he wasn't looking at. He wasn't concerned with royalty. He wasn't concerned with access to the king's palace. He was not concerned that he was going to lose out on the opportunity to hang out with the power brokers of his day. He wasn't concerned that he would not have an elite, top-level job in the most powerful country in that region. He wasn't thinking about any of those things we find out in verse 24. He didn't consider anything to be the Pharaoh's daughter, son. Then verse 25, we're told again, choosing rather to endure ill treatment with the people of God than to enjoy the passing pleasures of sin. Then in verse 26, considering the reproach of Christ greater riches than the treasures of Egypt. Notice what he wasn't looking at. We're told he wasn't looking at sin. And notice how it's described in verse 25. Passing pleasures. You see that? That's a very grimly realistic description of what sin is. It's pleasurable. You know, we fool ourselves if we don't realize that. We fool ourselves if we don't realize that we sin because we like it, there seems to be a payoff. There seems to be a reward in it. And Moses was aware of that. And what the preacher says is that Moses calculated what sin was correctly. It brought pleasure. And you know what he did? Instead of fixing his eyes and consuming his life with pleasure of sin he did something else fixing his eyes on the reward we receive enormous help here on the Christian life by looking at this verse honestly in relationship with Hebrews 12 too. you know There were all kinds of hindrances for him. He could have been looking at the pleasures of sin. He could have been looking at the treasures of Egypt. He could have been concerned with access to the royal throne. These were really big enticements. And instead, what we're told he did, he fixed his eyes on the reward which was Christ. You see, that's the key for us this morning as we think about applying this to our Christian life. What we need to do is accurately assess the the obstacles and the sin and all of that and beware and tell ourselves honestly what it is. And I'm just going to assume here this morning, and if it doesn't apply to you, that's okay. But I'm just going to assume here that everybody here has sin in their life that's pretty big and they're struggling with it. That's why I'm just going to assume that. And so we can talk to everybody. This is is how you root that out and you run the race with the discipline and the aim that the preacher speaks of here and that Paul speaks of in 1 Corinthians 9. Is you honestly assess the sin. You honestly think about what it really is. And then what you do is you contrast it to Christ. Now, if you're truly a Christian, that will take you a split second to realize what's more important to you. The pleasure of sin, and you can think about the the most pleasurable sin that you like to return to regularly, and you compare that to Jesus, and I will guarantee you, the pleasure of sin flees from your thinking, and Christ stands out over everything. And if He doesn't, you better go back to the Gospels and read about Jesus. Because there's no more wonderful person that you'll ever find than Jesus. You see, if we're still struggling after that, we haven't sufficiently understood who Jesus is. As our Savior. As a man. As the Son of God. is the incarnate Son. Who set aside royalty up above to come down here to be a servant. To win our redemption for us. You see, that's what we keep thinking about. That's what we keep looking toward. The preacher says, fixing our eyes on Jesus. That takes discipline. That takes careful thought. That takes weighing the value of things repeatedly. But, you know, when we keep fixing on Jesus... The preacher says we're running the right way. Back to 1 Corinthians 9. We're done. We're ready to wrap up our exposition of the passage this morning. But just one last thing here. It really stands as a warning and an admonition at the same time in verse 27. Paul, as he appeals to his own example of how he disciplines his body and he makes it his slave, he says, here's why I do it. This is a... An incredibly transparent moment for the Apostle. He says, "I, I do it all so that after I have preached to others, I myself will not be disqualified. You know, there's no reason to tone this down. What Paul is saying is, what would it be? What worth would it be if I spent my entire converted life sailing all over the Mediterranean, running here and running there through every corner of the Mediterranean, preaching and suffering and enduring persecution. What would any of that matter if at the end I did not meet Jesus and be glorified according to Christ's image? And I fell short of that and went to hell. He said it would be nothing. There's no reason to tone this down at all. Paul says what motivates him in his struggle and his discipline and his beating down his sinful desires is that he does not want to be disqualified. He doesn't want to fall short of meeting Christ in glory. You see, this is the perseverance side. This is the human side of this whole equation of the perseverance of the saints. Not, not time for a, a, another sermon on that, but, but look proper, biblical, Calvinistic understanding of the perseverance of the saints says, yes, God preserves you and it's impossible that you will ever fall away. If you are elect, if you are justified, if you are regenerate, you will never fall away from Christ. Jesus says, I give them eternal life and no one snatches them out of my hand. Peter, the apostle, says that we are kept by the power of God unto salvation. You will never fall short. Never. So here what I'm going to say in view of that. Don't Go home thinking that Pastor sattel told you that uh, you're going to lose your salvation maybe. But remember this, that just as strongly as the New Testament Scriptures promise that you'll be kept by the power of God of the salvation, it also says this, you persevere. You are to hear the threatenings. You are to say... I must do this. I don't want to fall short. I must beat my body into submission. It's not okay if I just say, hey, I've got got Jesus, I've got the blood, and I'm just going to go sin. It it never says that. You'll search the, the whole entire New Testament in vain trying to find that. Now, it powerfully and strongly exhorts us to persevere as if We didn't. There's severe consequences. Paul says it here. I I think about that, he said. I think about that when I'm preaching the Gospel. Will I preach this glorious message of Jesus Christ and Him crucified with with, with such passion and desire and aim to see so many come to Jesus for salvation and yet I come short of that? He says, may it never be. No. He said, I give myself... Uh, black and blue eyes all the time because there's nothing worse that I can think of than to fall short of Jesus. Two things that we walk away with then here as we come to our conclusion. Two things that the Christian will do in this race. One, you'll run so as to win By the grace of God, you will run so as to win. That's what you have to do. And secondly, while you're doing that, what assists you in keeping that focus upon the finish line and running so as to win is this. Self-discipline through the grace and the power of the Holy Spirit. Fixing our eyes on Jesus. Fixing our eyes on Jesus. Every step of the way. May God work these twin disciplines in our hearts so that we too uh, do not become disqualified and fall short of the grace which is in Jesus. Let's pray a second.